This episode is sponsored by ByHeart. ByHeart is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. Using the latest in breast milk science, ByHeart created a clinically proven, easy to digest infant formula that's made with organic grass-fed whole milk, certified clean ingredients, and features a patented protein blend that gets closest to breast milk. Their blend includes the most abundant protein found in breast milk, alpha-lac, as well as lactoferrin, the number one protein found in colostrum. In addition to its patented protein blend, their formula includes prebiotics and an 80-20 whey to casein ratio like in early breast milk, which is tailor-made for a newborn's digestive system and makes it an easy-to-digest formula. Curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com forward slash podcast with code Dr. Nicole for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant, free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through, and keeping their delicate skin happy and healthy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick, goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable as the diaper rash itself. Use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel good about making the right choice. Dr. Mom is committed to providing an ultra premium formula for moms who will not settle when it comes to their little ones. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with simple quality ingredients, no artificial dyes or preservatives, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Head to amazon.com or walmart.com to grab Dr. Mom Butt Balm because nothing comes between you and your baby, especially not diaper rash. This is a birth story episode that you do not want to miss. Welcome to the All About Pregnancy and Birth podcast. I'm Dr. Nicole Calloway-Rankins, a practicing board-certified OBGYN who's had the privilege of helping hundreds of moms bring their babies into this world. I'm here to help you be knowledgeable, prepared, confident, and empowered to have a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Quick note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Check out the full disclaimer at ncrcoaching.com forward slash disclaimer. Now let's get to it. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is episode number 84, and I'm so glad that you're here with me today. So on today's episode of the podcast, I have Jennifer Abdul Rahman. Jennifer is a mother to three young boys, and she's also an IBCLC, that's an international board certified lactation consultant. Jennifer's birth story episode is a little different because she's actually going to share a bit about 
all three of her births. Normally on the podcast, guests focus on just one story for the birth story episode, but we really need to hear all three of Jennifer's births in order to get the full picture. Now for a little teaser about her births, the first was a C-section after an unsuccessful labor induction. The second was a bit of a forced repeat cesarean birth after the practice where she went refused to let her attempt a VBAC. And then the third was an attempted VBAC, also known as a TOLAC, trial of labor after cesarean. And interestingly, all three of these births happened with the same practice. Now, there are so many great lessons in Jennifer's story that all mamas can learn from. Also, Jennifer is Muslim, and in addition to her birth stories, she shares some of her cultural and faith traditions surrounding birth. You are definitely going to find this episode informative and interesting. I know I learned a lot, and you will too. Now, before we get into the episode, I have a little bit of a secret to share. Within the next week, I am going to make an announcement about my signature online childbirth education class, the birth preparation course. The birth preparation course is exactly what you need in order to feel calm, confident, and empowered to have a beautiful birth. And if you have at all been thinking about enrolling in the course, then you don't want to miss this announcement. Follow me on Instagram at Dr. Nicole Rankins. That is the place to go if you want to hear it first. All right, so let's get into the episode with Jennifer's birth stories. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for agreeing to come onto the podcast. You have a really interesting story, and I am excited and grateful that you want to come on and share it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So why don't we have you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your work, and your family? Sure. So I'm a registered nurse. Um, I've been a nurse for the last 10 years, and I'm married. I have three boys. My oldest is eight. My middle child is six. And my youngest um, just turned two in January. So we kind of live in Pennsylvania. It's been nice, I guess, recently, like a struggle and nice that we have more family time. The kids are home. So <laughs> yeah. right, right. Like every day's a little unpredictable, but um, today's a good day. So I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. I hear you. What kind of nurse are you or do you still practice nursing? So I started out doing um, long-term care and then med surge, and I currently work as a lactation consultant. So I'm an IBCLC. Um, I work in a hospital and I also do private practice as well. Okay, awesome. And we'll talk about that at the end, you know, how people can find you in your lactation practice. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. All right. So, So for your story, you know, a lot of times on the podcast, women go through one birth story. But in your case, we have to really go through all three in order to get the full scope of everything that happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how about we start off first with talking about your first birth? I know that was an induction for preeclampsia that ended in cesarean. So how was that for you? Yeah. So I was actually working at a nursing home at the time and I was not feeling well one night and I took my blood pressure and it was very, very high. And I had an appointment the next day. So I went home, I slept, I went to my appointment and it was still high. So I was about 32 weeks at that point and they immediately put me on bed rest. So I was out of work. I was 
doing bed rest, but even though I was a nurse, I hadn't been a nurse for very long. I didn't work OB. So I don't think I fully understood how severe preeclampsia can be. So I was on modified bed rest rather than strict bed rest. So I probably didn't do as much bed rest as I should have. But oh, I don't beat yourself up about that. It's hot, you know, bed rest. We don't even know that it really does anything. So you were doing the best that you could at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And um, around 37 weeks, I went in and it was like nothing was working to keep my blood pressure down. So finally, at that point, they're like, we need to induce, like we need to deliver the baby. And going through all of my experiences, I found that I was one of those people who as soon as the baby was delivered, my blood pressures came back down immediately, like purely like pregnancy related. And um, that was what cured the preeclampsia for me. So with my first, I was induced. It was an exceptionally long labor. I felt like I had every intervention they could throw at me to help, to help my labor progress. And yeah, how, how long was the induction? Um, it was probably almost 40 hours. Okay. I, they started with some Pitocin, but because my blood pressures were high, they also put me on magnesium. So it was kind of like this game of like, keeping the magnesium, you know, at a, a level that it's actually going to benefit me and help my blood pressures, but then also trying to increase the Pitocin to help the contractions and help the labor progress. They tried helping to dilate my cervix and I eventually stalled at five centimeters and I was there for quite a while. Finally, when uh, one of the doctors kind of had a conversation with me about doing a C-section, because at that point I was kind of going on almost two days of being in labor. Gotcha. And how, how did you feel about when you got to that point? I had a mix of emotions. I was definitely exhausted. Um, I, <laughs> I could barely stay awake. I was so tired. I remember when I was in the OR, I just, I kept telling the, the anesthesiologist, I was like, I think I just need to sleep. I need to sleep. And he's like, it's okay. He's like, it's, it's okay. He's like, just go to sleep. It's okay. And I was like, I was like trying to fight it so hard. But I, you know, it was a mix of emotions of being tired and also disappointment that things didn't go as I had planned. Gotcha. And what had you planned? What had you wanted for your birth? Yeah. I mean, I definitely had wanted a natural delivery. Um, I wanted to be able to deliver naturally and I guess kind of just have my baby how <laughs> we're supposed <laughs> to have babies. And um, that quite didn't quite go as planned. Gotcha. Gotcha. Do you feel like during the process, people listened to you? You were treated well? What about that aspect? I felt like with my first, they were, you know, very um, supportive, you know, and understanding of the fact that things were not going as planned. And I do like before, remember before I went back to the OR that things were very kind of calm. And then once I said yes to the C-section, it was like a rush. (laughs) Like I don't even remember going from the delivery room to the OR. It was just everything went so fast at that point. And it was like before I knew it, the baby was out and it was like all done. And um, I think it was just, it was the whole experience seemed to kind of be cut short in a way, especially because my baby was then taken to the nursery. It wasn't a baby friendly hospital at the time. So they didn't allow the babies to stay in the OR. So I was separated from him for almost two hours. Okay. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. For sure. For sure. So then you got pregnant the second time. Mm -hmm. And then there's this discussion of wanting to try for a VBAC versus having a repeat C-section. So what did you decide in that that situation? So I had wanted a VBAC um, and I did all of my research 
I studied all the evidence. I talked to people. Um, I did everything I felt like I could on my end to educate myself. And I knew what the risks were, but I also knew what the benefits were. And the practice that I was at, I, I don't think it was a policy yet to do a VBAC after a cesarean. So every doctor I talked to refused to do a VBAC. They pretty much said I had to go into labor on my own or it was a C-section. So I felt like, I guess, powerless. It was all out of my control. You know, I pleaded for just low-dose Pitocin or just the Foley balloon to help dilate my cervix, something, like just something to to start things because I was 41 weeks <laughs> with my second and still only fingertip dilated and nothing was happening as far as contractions. And even at that point, nothing, they just said, no, if I didn't go into labor naturally, I would have to have a C-section. Right. Right. And what area were you, were you still in Pennsylvania at that time? Yeah. And that was in 2013. My first was born in 2012. And then my second was, they're 18 months apart. So my second was then 2013. Okay. Okay. As an OBGYN and podcast host, I'm excited to share a resource that empowers mothers and mothers-to-be in managing their pelvic floor and core health. It's called Informed Pregnancy Plus, and it offers access to essential workshops that can significantly enhance your understanding and care of your body during and after pregnancy. Discover The Core Connection, a foundational five-episode series by Natalie Headings, a pre-postnatal exercise specialist. This series covers the basics of pelvic floor health, teaches key postural adjustments, and shows you how to activate your core properly. For a more comprehensive experience, check out Mindful Movement. This premium series provides in-depth content, including practical exercises and personalized strategies to strengthen your body. It's like having a pelvic health expert in your home. You can try the full subscription streaming library of Informed Pregnancy Plus absolutely free. Visit informedpregnancy.tv to start an empowered journey toward a healthier motherhood. Take this step for your health, your body, and your baby will thank you. Did you consider trying to find another practice or were you hoping things would just sort of that you wouldn't get to that point. Yeah, I had considered it. Unfortunately, the insurance I had, I could only go to that hospital. Gotcha. You know, you you're faced with what you're faced with and yeah. you're trying to make the best out of the situation that that you had. Yeah. I mean, how did you feel during your pregnancy and like every single time somebody's saying like either it's this or, you know, or a C-section? I I really felt like it was my body and I had no control over what was being done to it. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was, I didn't feel that I was taking a risk because I had done all the research and I knew what the risks and benefits were. And I had seen what was being done in other places in our country and that this was an option for a lot of women. So I think that was the part too, where this was being done and even though I'm asking for it, I was just repeatedly denied. And even when it came time for the delivery, I asked for delayed cord clamping. I asked for the, you know, no, going in knowing I was going to have a C-section this time. I asked for the, the drape to be dropped so I could see my baby come out and, you know, have the baby stay in the OR, be skin to skin. And all of those things were denied. So that was the hard part too, because I knew once again, 
that my baby was going to be taken away for two hours. I wouldn't see him. And I think that was the hardest part about my first delivery because I felt so disconnected. And that's why I wanted a VBAC so bad with my second, because I felt so disconnected from the whole experience. Like I never felt them come out. I never saw them come out. And that's hard to like cope with that afterwards when you, you, something's happening to your body, but you can't even feel or know that it's happening. Wow. I just, Hearing it is just really hard to hear because I can imagine how difficult it it was for you. Do you feel like it made it hard for you to establish that bond and that connection with your baby that you had this delay? Um, With my first, definitely. You know, I hear a lot of people say they're like immediately in love with their baby. And with my first, I felt like it was a couple of weeks until I really had like a connection with him or like had like emotional feelings towards him. My second, I felt like it happened a little bit more quickly, but it was still difficult after to kind of get my mind past that, that disconnection. Right. Right. And then I guess what was their response with at the second time when you come to this conclusion that, okay, I'm going to have this cesarean, you come to this conclusion and then you ask for things like delayed Court clamping and skin to skin. What, what did they say when you asked for these things? Literally just no. <laughs> it was, the doctor that I spoke to that was there to do my C-section that day, he was just like, no, we, we don't do that. And I, I, I was kind of like taken aback because I was like, wait, what? Like, I, like I've researched this and there's evidence-based research on this. And I just couldn't understand. And I, I think a lot of it had to do with policies and procedures, which I also feel is unfortunate that we can't make room for accommodations in that way, especially when it makes such a huge impact. But I also feel like the, the impact that those experiences had on me, that was never discussed. I don't think anyone maybe even realized it or even discussed those things with me. So I also feel like they didn't really have the knowledge to know the impact that that was going to have. Yeah, for sure. Man, that is just so tough. Now at this, and was this the same hospital where you had your first? It was. Yeah. Okay. Did you know anything about the hospital ahead of time in terms of how they, like what kind of, I'm just curious if they had a reputation in the community for birth. I mean, the hospital has a good reputation and I think that baby friendly designation made a huge difference because at that time they were not baby friendly, but once they were, then all of these practices were implemented. So that made a huge difference. Gotcha. So all three of you, your babies were born at the same hospital. Yeah. My second one or my third baby I had at a different site though. Okay. So it was not in the same environment. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So you have the second C-section. So they won't do delayed core clamping skin to skin. And again, they took the baby away to the nursery. Yeah. So it was another instance where I asked, you know, can the baby stay in the OR at least for a little while? And they said no. And I think it was something that they didn't have the staff to support having the baby stay in the nursery. So my husband went with our son to, to, um, or stay in the OR, I mean. So my husband went with our son to the nursery and then I stayed in the OR and then they brought him back to me when I was in the recovery room. And my second C-section actually, because I had a lot of scar tissue from my first, I was in the OR for probably a good hour and 45 minutes because I could start to feel like the the epidural starting to wear off. 
and the morphine doesn't do anything. <laughs> they, they gave me some extra morphine and I was like, like okay, yeah. yeah. I'm like, it may be a little sleepy, but I still feel the pain. <laughs> right, right. So it was, it was probably a good two hours, maybe even longer until I saw him in the recovery room then. And nobody said that your husband could just sit there and hold the baby like while in the OR, like nobody. Oh, God. And I, and at that time, you know, I, I, I felt like I did a lot of education and, you know, educated myself and I still wasn't even aware of like, even asking him to, you know, like, can he do this? You know, that part of it was not even considered either. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, that's really heartbreaking to hear. So Then you get pregnant a third time and you decided again that you wanted to try for a vaginal birth. How did you, how did you come to that decision? So I think because both of my first experiences, my first and second pregnancy, I just had that major disconnect and I just mentally could not get past that, that experience. And I also felt like I didn't do everything I could to try for a vaginal delivery. You know, like I, I was just always in the back of my mind, like if I had had this option, could I have delivered vaginally? And I just like couldn't let go of that question. So the third time when but I, I feel I'm sorry, to, but I feel like you did everything you could. Like what more could yeah. you have done? <laughs> I guess I did in the in the you know in the constraints of like where, you know what options and resources I had. You know I did everything I could and I I advocated for myself as best that I could. And I guess I just I really wanted to deliver naturally and just like have that, have that moment. And when I went to the OB for my third uh, pregnancy, they were actually like, oh yeah, like we can do all of these interventions now. And I'm like, really? I'm like, not even like four years ago, this was like, I was told nothing. And now, you know, we were able to do all of this other, like everything I had asked for that second time. Now it was an available option. And this is the same group of doctors. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. must have annoyed the blank out of you. It like, did. Okay. <laughs> it did. Because <laughs> I felt like this is everything I advocated for with my second pregnancy, not even four years ago. And it took that long for them to kind of catch up, I guess, and get on board with this stuff. So that part of it, it was definitely frustrating. It was definitely frustrating, but I also had a little bit of hope because I felt like, okay, like, even though this is late, I guess better late than never. And we did do as much as they could. And I actually, uh, with my third at about, I think it was about 32 weeks, I got the stomach bug. I do not recommend the stomach bug while pregnant. Um, It was the absolute worst. It lasted an entire week. I was constantly like nauseous, vomiting, getting dizzy all the time. And because some of the symptoms overlapped with preeclampsia and because of my history, I was kind of in and out of the hospital a little bit. And they had done a 24-hour urine, which showed some trace protein. And that was kind of like my worst fear, like that preeclampsia would develop and would limit my options. I was kind of labeled as like mild pre-E. So it was kind of just a game of, you know, how long can I go until those symptoms could possibly get worse, but also giving my body enough time to be able to go into labor naturally or hope that it does. So I kind of, I hit 38 weeks. And at that point I was, I decided to do an induction because I was like, I'm, I'm far enough along at this point that hopefully my body will, you know, kind of start to kick in with the induction methods, but also the pre 
like for me, I felt fine. I, I know what pre-E feels like because I had it with my first and I did have severe symptoms. Um, like all the symptoms that they say you get, I had the floaters, the flash edema, um, the headaches, the headaches, everything, everything. So I, I knew what that felt like. And I did not feel like that at all with my third. I actually felt really healthy. I gained way less weight with my third than I did with my other two. So I just, it felt like a much better, healthier pregnancy. And then when I came for the induction, so we did some low dose Pitocin, they dilated my cervix with the Foley balloon. I got to about five centimeters and I was having contractions like every two minutes, um, because of the Pitocin. And then at that point they broke in my water and I was kind of, you know, in that for a while. Um, and my body just wasn't progressing again. So it kind of stalled at five centimeters. Okay. But you, but you felt like this time you actually had the opportunity. Yeah. I felt like I had the opportunity. And I think the thing for me is that when we did decide to do a C-section again, they shut the Pitocin off and my contractions immediately went from like super strong every two minutes to like mild every 10 minutes. Okay. (laughs) That was like a huge clue to me that I was like, okay, like no matter what I do, my body just does not go into labor. Like it just doesn't happen. Um, So that was kind of like validating for me that it wasn't something I did or didn't do. Like my body was just not meant to go into labor. So this time you, do you feel like you felt better about that? The C-section decision? I do. I felt more confident about the decision and I felt like the decision was mine. I felt like I was the one who made that decision and had control over that decision. And I always remember the one nurse I had, she was probably the only person ever throughout all three of my pregnancies who really had this conversation with me. But when I was in labor um, with my third and I, and we were kind of like, you know, on the fence of, you know, they're trying to talk to me about a C-section and I was like, not having it. And she was like, why is this so important to you? She's like, can you tell me, like, just tell me why this is so important. And I just like burst out into tears and I started telling her about my horrible experience with my first two. And she was probably the only person that ever even asked me that question. And then I just remember her going like above and beyond to do everything she possibly could. Like I was in the OR and she was yelling. She's like, where's the clear drape? Let's get the clear drape. Where is it? And they found it and no one had used it before. So it was kind of a little awkward, but we figured it out. And I was actually, (laughs) I was actually able to like pull the drape down. I could see him come out. I could see him, you know, they were holding him up and I could see the, the cord and then they did the delayed cord clamping. So it was just a totally different, totally different experience. And she really was, you know, instrumental in that and helping to make that the birth that I had wanted for my last two even. Right, right. I That just must have made a huge difference in how you felt when about the whole experience. Yeah. And I definitely felt more connected. They took him to the warmer for the one minute and five minute Apgars. And then they brought him right back to me and put him on my chest. And he was on my chest in the OR. He breastfed in the OR. And he was there for like a good 45 minutes. The one nurse was like, okay, we have to take him in a little bit. Cause we're, you know, we're going to put you over onto the stretcher. And she probably had to say it like four times. And I was like, you're just going to have to take him. Like, I'm not going to give him up. You're just going to have to take him. <laughs> so it was just, it was a totally different experience. And I remember like he breastfed in the OR at least twice. And then when we got back to the recovery room, he breastfed, it, he was just on and off the whole time. Like the whole time he was breastfeeding. And I remember with my first two, because they missed that initial 
breastfeed in the first like hour or two, it was like they fed, but it was like 10 minutes. And then I don't even think they fed again for like three or four hours. Like it was just not the same experience at all. It was totally different in that respect as well. So do you feel like even, obviously the nurses were like saving the day for your third C-section. Do you feel, how were the physicians? So when I went into the hospital, I was there for two different shifts and I felt like the first doctor was definitely respectful, especially for, you know, for me as a Muslim, like there's certain things that I prefer. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second too. Yeah. So there's certain things that I prefer and I felt like he was definitely respectful of that. So I actually refused magnesium with my third. Um, They wanted to put me on it. And I said, no, because I knew my body and I knew that I was not experience in preeclampsia, I knew that my blood pressures were fine, even though my average blood pressures when I'm pregnant are like kind of like considered like mildly high for, for pre-E that's like normal for me. And if I take pressure meds, I'm actually highly sensitive and I drop too low. So I know what my good range is and what my bad range is. And I knew how it felt. So I actually refused the magnesium. He didn't really agree with that. What were your numbers? I'm curious. Do you know what your blood pressure was in the hospital? Yeah. So I was averaging like 130 over 80 to 140 over 90 with my third in the hospital. And they would go up a little bit when I was having contractions, but then they would come right back down. So I think just because I had that diagnosis of pre-E, they had wanted to do the magnesium, which I knew would stall my labor for sure. So I I was not okay with that. Yeah, we don't. And actually we don't so much. um, (laughs) You were right. We don't, we don't, we don't do magnesium unless the blood pressures are severe or you're having symptoms. So yeah. they have to be like 160 over 110 consistently, or you're having the bad headaches or things like that in order to yeah. do magnesium. So, and I think they may have been worried that I wouldn't disclose if I had symptoms, but I was like, I'm not going to put me and my baby at like in harm's way. Like if I have symptoms, I'll, I'll tell you. But I was like, as of right now, I don't have symptoms. <laughs> so I just, and it's hard to where, you know, the practice that I go to and then where I deliver, it might not always be the same doctors that I have that I see in my, in the office. Sure. So, you know, I feel like there's oftentimes, you know, not a trust there, you know, they don't know me, they don't know what I know, but I also know my body and I know myself. So I think it's hard in that situation too. Gotcha. Okay. So you said that first doctor was respectful, but the second was how? So the nurses really kind of stood up for me and, um, He wanted to, I guess, come in and do a cervical check. And the nurse had told him like, oh, she's Muslim. She would prefer that the OB resident do it. And it was all third year residents that were there. And he was kind of very forceful about being in the room. So the resident, the female resident did do my check, but he was kind of like there. And I just felt like his demeanor was kind of aggressive in a way. And I felt like because maybe I had like refused some things along the way or wanted things a certain way, I was almost like kind of being punished for that by him needing to like take control somehow. So that part of it was a little frustrating, but the nurses really, like, I remember she did the check and two of the nurses kind of stood on my left side, which was in front of where he was standing. So they kind of put like a wall there um, and made sure that I was completely covered with the blankets and stuff so that nothing was visible to him. And it's not that like, I would not accept a male provider if it's like an emergency or if, you know, they're the ones that do the C-section because he did end up being the one that did the C-section. But, you know, if it's necessary, absolutely. But like, if there's another option, like that would be preferred. Sure. Um, So I just, I felt like there was maybe a little bit of hostility from that. 
and that kind of, you know, reflected on, you know, how things were handled. Right. And how did that make you feel then turning around and this was the person who was doing your surgery? It was a little difficult. And I guess I I kind of felt like I I guess I didn't really have a choice. There was two other OB residents that were females that were there. So they were also assistant as well. And then there was a lot of nurses in the room that had been with me throughout the entire experience too. So I kind of just, you know, focused on them pretty much. Gotcha. Gotcha. And was your husband with you this whole time? He was. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do you feel like he was able to help advocate for you at all or not? A little bit. Yes. He also doesn't have a medical background at all. Um, He's an accountant. So (laughs) we we always joke about that because he definitely is good at standing up for, you know, me and supporting me through all of that. I think it's a little bit harder for him to kind of stand up to medical professionals. Sure. Sure. Which I wasn't so much because I am one. So I kind of knew what was appropriate, what wasn't. And I felt comfortable voicing that. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. So let's talk about for a bit, you said you're Muslim. So what does that mean for you in terms of what you desire for your care, both like during your prenatal care and then during your birth as well? Yeah. So prenatally, we try to choose female providers just for out of respect for modesty. And it's also usually easier to converse about the female body with somebody who kind of understands that as well. So we try to, for modesty reasons, go with female providers. Obviously, if there's ever like an emergency and there's not a female provider available, we're not going to refuse care. That's often like a misconception, like we would never refuse care. But obviously, you know, you always have like the ideal and then you have the backup. So if the ideal is there and available, that's, you know, what we would prefer. Pregnancy, you know, is is something in Islam that's like highly respected. So I do kind of expect that providers, you know, incorporate my religious beliefs into my prenatal care because everything we do in Islam has a purpose and there everything is meaningful and it's, you know, all of those things intertwine with each other. Typically prenatally, I am cautious about what I eat to make sure that I'm only eating like halal meat or um, halal food products. Vitamins were always a struggle. With my third, I think I was finally able to find halal DHA vitamins. Um, What does halal mean? Is that the way it's prepared? Yeah. So it's the way that the animal is slaughtered and um, really the way the animal is raised. And um, it means that the animal is essentially like free range, grass fed, organic. It's treated fairly throughout its life. It's killed in a way that is humane and they're treated humanely throughout their entire lifespan. Okay. And then when they are slaughtered, there's a prayer that's said over the meat and it's slaughtered in a specific way that's actually healthier versus ways that kind of stagnate the blood into the animal. So the way it's killed also has to be humane and done in an ethical way. So when we look at like vitamins, a lot of vitamins have gelatin in it, which comes from pork and pork in Islam is, is forbidden. Like we don't eat pork at all. So a lot of the vitamins have gelatin uh, and there are a lot more like halal brands now, but I really couldn't even find that DHA with that was halal and had halal gelatin in it um, until my third pregnancy. So I think for some of them, I didn't take the DHA because I couldn't find one that, that had, that was halal that I could actually consume. Right. So the midwife that I had seen through parts of my pregnancy actually was like really understanding about it um, and tried to help me find some alternatives. And then I don't even think I really mentioned it to anyone else. (laughs) 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Were you worried if you mentioned it, that you would get some sort of pushback or that they wouldn't be open to helping you? A little bit. I, I guess I probably kind of felt like maybe they wouldn't understand or I would, you know, like get, you know, like in trouble kind of for, yeah, <laughs> for yeah. not taking it or kind of, you know, like almost be talked down to. Um, so sometimes I just wouldn't even mention it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Back in the day when my girls were born, it was not easy to share photos and videos with loved ones, but you have a fantastic option available, the Family Album app. The Family Album app was created in 2015 and has operated in the long term to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with loved ones. It's a totally secure personal haven for your family's memories. I love that there's no third-party ads, no unwanted eyes. Now let's let me share some of the great features that make the Family Album app a go-to app. First off, the app automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and see how your child has grown. No more scrolling through endless feeds or searching through folders. Another cool feature about the Family Album app is you can order eight free photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. It's really nice to have some tangible pictures to hold onto or share to document each month of your baby's life. Plus, the Family Album app has unlimited storage and it is totally free. Yes, you heard that right. No more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by ads when you're just trying to relive those heartwarming moments. So if you are still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, it is time to level up your family photo game with a free photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, it's all one word, download the app and start creating a legacy of love one photo at a time. Anything else that was different about your, your care because of your religion? Um, so typically uh, throughout the delivery process and the labor process, we listen to Quran a lot. So we usually have it playing in the delivery room when the baby's born. And then right after they're born, usually my husband will do it. Um, in one year, we whisper the Adan, which is the call to prayer. So we pray five times a day. And the Adan, like if you were in a Muslim country, you'd hear it just from the mosques. Um, they play it really loud. So it's the call to prayer. And we say that in the right ear. And then in the left ear, we say like a shortened version of that. And that's essentially us welcoming the baby into the world as a Muslim. And it's kind of similar to, I guess, like baptism in other religions. Like this is our way to kind of bring them into the Muslim world and, you know, tell them that they're Muslim. So that's something that we do after delivery. And then we constantly have the Quran playing um, as well. And uh, I think through some of my C-sections, I think one of them, we, they did put the Quran on in the OR. And then the other one, I don't remember why we didn't. But I think one of the other things is that it's kind of like a religious, you know, it, it has some religious significance, like as the baby's being born, and for them to hear, like the words of God as they're being born and all of sure. those. And I, there was times like in the OR where there was kind of like some side conversations or like, you know, just, it was almost like we weren't there. <laughs> and there was other conversations happening, you know, and then they would stop, at, you know, if we we asked them to stop. But I think that was something that it was, it was kind of uh, difficult to 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 deal with because it's not always the ideal experience how you would want it, especially when other people maybe don't understand like the importance and the significance of what's happening. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I'm no, I'm learning something myself right now. (laughs) 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 So, um, anything else that's different, which, and you're not actually asking for a lot. It's not even like, it's like a ton that's, that's, you know, super different. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that, uh, we do after the baby's born, it's called Tanique and it's where we take a little bit. So I don't know if you've ever had like a medjool date, but those really big juicy ones where you open them up and it's like really kind of like the day you can kind of pick it out. It's very sticky. So we take a little bit of that and it's almost like a puree and we rub it on the, the lower gum line of the baby in their mouth. And it's actually like a 1500 year old tradition and it comes, it's rooted in when, um, we believe Mary gave birth to Jesus and she gave birth alone under a date tree. And she used the dates to sustain herself and her energy, and then also um, rubbed it on the inside of Jesus's mouth after he was born. So it's something that we do traditionally, and we rub it on the inside of the baby's mouth, and it's supposed to be the first thing they taste before their mother's milk. So that's something that I didn't really know about that, actually, when I had my first child and things were so chaotic, I don't even think it ever would have happened. But with my second and my third, I was very firm and like demanding that those things be done. So uh, we were able to do that with our second and then also with our third. Okay. Now, I did not know that either. Again, yeah. learning something new. Um, I've actually talked to a lot of friends who have had babies and I've told them that I've done that. And they were actually shocked that I did it. And I was like, why? And they were like, well, they're like, we just never asked because we assumed we wouldn't be allowed to. Mm, gotcha. So, gotcha. Yeah. Cause I've had a lot of other providers say that they never knew about it. And I said, I honestly think people probably just aren't asking because yeah. they just assume they won't be able to. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And I don't think there's no reason why you can't do it. So no. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Anything else? I'm like, what else do we need to learn? <laughs> um, so it was, I actually have an interesting story. And actually when my second child was born, because I was pregnant for 41 weeks, he was very large. Um, and he was on the hypoglycemic protocol. It was really hard to get him to wake for feeds. So I used to rub a little bit of the date on the inside of his mouth, like right before every feed and he would perk up, he would feed great. And then he just, I did that each time and he got off of the blood sugar protocol. His blood sugars were great. One of the nurses even commented, they were like, wow, his sugars are like in the seventies every time. They're like, we usually don't see this. This is really good. He must be feeding really well. And I was like, oh yeah, he is. I never mentioned about the teeth, but it was the only way. And it was just, my logic was like, oh, you know, like I know they used to give like sugar water sometimes to like get the babies to wake up and feed. And I was like, maybe this will do the same thing. And it absolutely worked. And then I told a friend about it. And a few months later, she sent me like a research article. I don't think it was done in the US, but it was done, you know, probably in a Muslim country. But um, it had said that they used like dates to help babies on the hypoglycemic protocol to prevent hypoglycemia. And I was like, wow. So like something I did as like a 1500-year-old tradition was then shown in like evidence-based research too. That is really cool. And, you know, I don't think we've, appreciated enough of what happens, like taking some of ancient traditions yeah. and carrying them forward. So, um, and kind of marrying the best of both worlds. So we definitely need to do that more. Yeah, absolutely. Now I know you also, just from the picture that you sent, you wear a hijab. Did yeah. you ever, did you ever experience any difficulties or backlash because of that? Throughout my birth and experiences, I felt like 
people were generally respectful. There was a few times, especially with like male doctors where they were kind of just like knock and barge into the room and I'd be like scrambling to put my scarf on. So there was like multiple times where I know I asked the nurses to like put a sign on the door to please like knock and wait for people to come into the room just so that I could put my scarf on. And um, I think that sometimes there's this misconception that because they see one part of me, that they have access to all of me. And that's not necessarily okay. Yeah, it's not okay, period. Yeah. Yeah. So just because, you know, you're able to see one private part of me doesn't mean that, you know, the rest of me is free game either. So I would always, you know, still prefer to like wear the hijab if I was talking to another male or to somebody who's outside of my family. And most, I feel like most people were respectful and a lot of people did need that reminder on the door, which is is fine because it, you know, it's probably not, it's not the norm for that to happen. So I think it's probably something that, you know, just gets lost, but have, you know, having the staff put like a sign on the door was really helpful um, to just alert staff, you know, and then especially when I was up on like the mom baby unit, I just kind of said like, no, like no males, unless, you know, like they, announce before they're coming in because you know sometimes you have like the food delivery people bringing stuff in and you know it's just it's so many people in and out so we always just had like check with the nurse and then you know if somebody needed to come in at least I could like get myself dressed and appropriate before somebody from the opposite sex would walk in gotcha 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 okay anything else you want to share about your birth experiences and your religion or anything in general I think um one thing that I always try to, to tell women is, you know, when you're going through this, like educate yourselves as much as you can and not even just read in online or read in evidence online, but talk to other people. And I think for me, I was the first person out of all of my friends to have kids. So now I, I feel like I've become an advocate to all of them because they're all <laughs> having kids now. And right. I'm like, what you need to know. This is what you need to do. So it's like, okay, like, you know, even though parts of my experience were like very um, traumatic for me, I was like, now I feel like I can help other people, you know, but definitely like talk to other people and, you know, find out what their experiences have been. So that way, when you're going into it, you have more knowledge and you have the ability to really advocate for yourself in those situations. Because I think sometimes, you know, we are like the only advocates we have. And um, if we're not the ones saying something or standing up for ourselves, there's no guarantee that anyone else will be there to do it either. That is very, very true and an excellent way for us to end. And I'm curious, do you feel like your experiences have, as you know, as I ask, um, where can people find you with your work? Do you feel like your experiences have influenced your decision to become a lactation consultant? Um, they absolutely did. I I mean, with my first child, I didn't even know what a lactation consultant was. And looking back, I definitely needed one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my, my first uh, breastfeeding was painful for like the first three months. And I came to find when he was seven years old that he had a tongue tie that was never diagnosed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, we breastfed for a year, but it wasn't like, it wasn't easy. And had I known about those services, had I known that there was people that could help me, it could have been totally different or a better experience. So that was, you know, that was for me something that I definitely felt like I could relate to more. And I always tell people now, like when they, as soon as they get pregnant, I'm like, prepare yourself for breastfeeding because you, a lot of people, I think, think it's just going to happen or it just works. And sometimes that happens, but the majority of the time, it usually does not. Um, And there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be questions. And especially 
in the U.S., we don't, breastfeeding isn't normalized. There's so many people having babies now that don't know anyone that has ever breastfed. Yeah. And in a lot of cultures, that used to be generational knowledge. That used to be something that that was passed down from, you know, grandparents to mothers to granddaughters, and it's not anymore. People are breastfeeding, and they have no concept of what that's supposed to look like or what it's supposed to feel like or how it's supposed to work. Um, and we've kind of lost all of those generations of knowledge, and now we're trying to rebuild that. But it's not, it's, you know, it's not really at the point yet where it's it's generational or, uh, you know, that knowledge is passed down. For sure. For sure. So where can people find you to find out more about your lactation consultant work? Yeah. So my uh, private practice is called Latched Eternal Lactation Consultant. So on Instagram, I'm at latched underscore eternal. um, And I also have a page on Facebook as well. One of my, my biggest things that I really advocate for is informed consent. Through my own experiences and also talking to other families, it is never harder when I hear, you know, that parents would have made different decisions had they had that information. You know, they're like, if I had known this two years ago, I would have done things differently. And that's heartbreaking to me because the information is there. It's always been there, you know, and it's just that it's hard to access sometimes for a lot of families or they don't know who to reach out to or they don't have the support to to be able to implement those things. But that's one of the things that I really advocate for is that parents and families have the information they need to make an informed decision on how to care for themselves and their babies. Exactly. And that's the really important part. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for agreeing to come onto the podcast. This has been a really Um, helpful and informative interview. And I really appreciate you coming on to share your story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Don't you agree that that was such great information and really informative? I really enjoyed talking to Jennifer and I really appreciate her sharing her story. Now, you know, after every episode, when I have a guest on, I do something called Nicole's Notes, where I do my top three or four takeaways from my discussion with the guest. And here are Nicole's notes for my discussion with Jennifer. And actually, it was hard for me to narrow it down to just four. Okay, number one, practice patterns can differ so drastically from place to place, or even between doctor to doctor within the same practice. Jennifer mentioned that for her second birth in 2013, she knew that labor induction in the setting of a trial of labor after cesarean was possible because she'd seen it done in other places. And she is exactly right. You can definitely be induced for a trial of labor after cesarean. In her case, she unfortunately cannot find other options because she was constrained by insurance, but many times you can. So I say that to say that if you have a provider who's telling you things that aren't possible and you either suspect they are possible or you know for sure that it's not true, if you can, then find other options options. Look for another provider. It is never too late to change to find someone who is more supportive of your wishes. Okay. Point number two, nurses can save the 
day. Let me tell you, a good L&D nurse is so, so, so important. They're the ones who are with you at the bedside for the vast majority of your labor, and they can make such a big difference in your care. It was a nurse for Jennifer who asked, why are the things that you want important to you? And she listened to her and she went that extra mile in order to help Jennifer have the experience she wanted. And in the case of Jennifer, she actually helped buffer against some of the negative care that she was receiving from the male care provider who was more kind of aggressive about wanting to be in the room when she was being checked and not being respective of her preferences or wishes. It was nurses who helped advocate for her. So a great nurse for your labor and birth can make all the difference. This is another area where if you are not happy with the nurse that you have, then ask for another nurse. You can ask to be assigned a different nurse. Just ask to speak to the charge nurse. The charge nurse is the nurse who is in charge for the shift and she does not have any patient care responsibilities typically or they're very small patient care responsibilities and she is the one who can give you another nurse if you're not happy with the one that you have so nurses can save the day if you're not happy with the one you have then ask for a different one the third point i want to make is that Doctors can change. Our system can change. Jennifer delivered with the same practice for all three births. And by the third one, they'd finally come around. However, as you can see, change can be slow. It can take on average many, 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 many years for change to occur in medicine. Actually, Jennifer knew about delayed cord clamping and skin to skin before the doctors in her practice did. But I do want to mention that there is hope that our system can change. So all is not lost in terms of having that birth experience that you deserve. It really, really, really is possible. And then my final point and something that Jennifer said that I want to echo is to Educate yourself. Of course, information alone doesn't necessarily fix everything. In Jennifer's case, she had information, but she still faced some challenges. However, without information, without that education, without that knowledge, you're really leaving yourself completely at the mercy of those around you. And you may not have what you need in order to advocate for yourself. This is where great childbirth education is so, so, so important. Really, everyone should invest in great childbirth education. It's key. And speaking of childbirth education, do not forget to go follow me on Instagram at Dr. Nicole Rankin so you don't miss the special announcement that I have about my online childbirth education class, the birth preparation course. All right, so that is it for this episode of the podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you are listening to me today. And I would really love it if you leave a review in Apple Podcast. First of all, I love hearing what you think about the show. All of those comments helps keep me going, helps keep me motivated, gives me ideas for things to talk about on the show. It also helps the show to grow and helps other women find the show. So if you can leave me that review, honest review in Apple Podcasts, I would so appreciate it. 
Now, next week on the podcast, I have a guest on who will be sharing her very interesting fertility journey and how she took a bit of a different approach to it. So do come on back next week. And until then, I wish you a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the All About Pregnancy and Birth podcast. Head to my website, ncrcoaching.com, to get even more great info, including free downloadable resources on how to manage pain and labor and warning signs to look out for after birth. You'll also find information on my free online class on how to make a birth plan, as well as everything you need to know about the birth preparation course. Again, that's ncrcoaching.com, and I will see you next week. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.